Welcome to Music and the Church, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Breza, and today I am delighted to bring you a conversation with Randall J. Stevens about his book, The Devil's Music, How Christians Inspired, Condemned, and Embraced Rock and Roll. Randall is a professor at the University of Oslo, and he is a historian whose research has primarily been on holiness and Pentecostal traditions. His new book, The Devil's Music, explores the connections between Pentecostalism and rock and roll. As many of y'all know, American Christians by and large did an about-face on popular music in churches. At first, a huge rejection of rock and roll, and then later, especially in the 70s up until now, an embrace of popular musical idioms in Christian music. Randall's book explores this transition in detail, especially as it relates to the Pentecostal tradition. Here's Randall and I talking about his book. Can you give us a brief overview of your book so listeners can get a sense of it? Yeah, sure. So the the first book I, I wrote that was part of my dissertation was about Pentecostalism. And then in, in uh, working on that research in the, it, you know, I was, as I was looking at the 20th century, I found quite a few of these um, early rock and roll stars had Pentecostal roots. And I thought, oh, that'd be an interesting story to try to tell. So it came out of that originally, you know, first just focusing on, on the 1950s. But then from there, I've kind of seen this thread of, of Pentecostalism and of charismatic religion run through both secular rock music and then with the uh, advent of Christian rock in the late 1960s, there was also a strong kind of Pentecostal and charismatic element. So that's, that's part of the story I tell, but it's also a story about how Christianity has kind of woven back and forth, maybe you could say like across the the threshold of church doors, or it's, or it's gone back and forth across the threshold of church doors over the decades. So I was trying to talk about how, you know, this kind of binary between of, of secularism and sort of sacred music is not as uh, sort of set as maybe we might think it is. That was one of the things that most interested me in your book, because so often the narrative is that Christians Christian music artists imitate secular artists. And I'm thinking of like those charts that are like, well, if you like XYZ uh, secular artists, you'll like, you'll like Amy Grant, you'll like Michael W. Smith. And what the story that you're telling is that so much of rock and roll specifically is oriented in Pentecostalism. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, back to the earliest days. So people like, a lot of people know that that performers like Elvis Presley um, were, Pente- you know, from Pentecostal churches, the Assemblies of God, and so mm-hmm. was Jerry Lee Lewis. But both black and white early stars of rock and roll had Pentecostal associations, went to Pentecostal churches, and then especially drew from not just gospel music, but a lot of times drew from kind of sanctified quartets and both black and white church quartets that were in the, the Pentecostal and sanctified traditions. You know, I was, I was, you know, cautious to say that this is just one of the kind of streams that, that goes into the river of rock and roll, because rock and roll is such a, a kind of promiscuous genre with all mm-hmm. these different yeah, yeah. Um, sort of components that, that make it up. But I think it's a pretty strong one, especially because, you know, both in its early incarnation, rock and roll music was a Southern phenomenon. It was almost entirely based regionally out of the American South. And it was also 
heavily uh, influenced, I think, by Pentecostal practice, worship styles, uh, religious music. Could you speak to the Pentecostal practices and worship styles that you see being um, influential on rock and roll? Well, you'd see kind of hints of it in early interviews with, uh, with Little Richard, who himself was a Seventh-day Adventist, but he went quite a bit to Pentecostal churches and interviews with um, Elvis and with uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, where they would talk about the, the impact of, of preachers. Uh, like one, for instance, there was a black preacher named uh, Brother Joe May, who was a singing evangelist, who was called the Thunderbolt of the Midwest. And he had a, a strong sort of impact on um, Little Richard. Another person more famous than, than that was uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who's kind of the, the godmother of, of rock and roll, who Little Richard was you know, really into her music and heavily influenced by her. Elvis was, was influenced by black quartets like the Golden Gate Quartet, but also by white quartets like uh, the Stamps Quartet um, and a variety of others. Um, Elvis talking about how, you know, he imitated like the movements on stage of some of these performers. Yeah, I was intrigued by that. Like seeing, I think it was an interview where the interviewee asked Elvis, oh, well, where are you getting these, these movements from? And he's like, oh, from these gospel quartets. It was very interesting because he, he would say that on one hand, but he also would, got kind of burned in a way because a lot of people within these churches, the Assemblies of God, were very upset when he was talking, when he was talking about that kind of influence. They, I ran across this you know, treasure trove of these letters by uh, people within his denomination who were responding to those sorts of comments that he made. Mm-hmm. And they were adamant that they wanted to be distanced from him and they wanted nothing to do with him. And so there's these great letters uh, from his, his pastor, James Hamill, to the uh, general superintendent of the Assemblies of God Church, they're talking about kind of the problem of Elvis and mm-hmm. they didn't want to be in the news for that reason. Uh, so it's an, it's an interesting kind of irony uh, there. Like we don't want this uh, famous person being associated with our denomination. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, that's so interesting. Like um, one thing that you talked about was Jerry Lee Lewis stopping in the midst of playing. And this was, I think on an interview and he's just like, Oh, this is the devil's music. And and kind of voicing frustration with himself that he was playing this music rather than um, basically being a preaching evangelist. And I'm wondering here, do you have a sense of when he's talking about this, is he really, like, is he talking about the kind of wild and raunchy lyrics of the music or the sound of the music? Do you have a sense, like, at, at what particularly um, these artists were getting at in this this uh, this tension they were feeling between their their faithful upbringing and the music that they were making. Yeah. A lot of times it, it, I think that it has to do with the beat and with, with the uh, stigmatizing of the, of the heavy beat of rock and roll, Mm. Um, but also the movements and, and sometimes the lyrics as well. And, and the fact that they're kind of, that sometimes they're taking kind of slightly gospel forms and they're, and they're, um, you know, dressing them up in kind of profane garb. Like the most clear example of that is with, you know, the rhythm and blues and soul legend, Ray Charles, who, when, when you listen to some of the songs that he was um, borrowing from, like a, a song called It Must Be Jesus, which became I Got a Woman, you can really hear the, the influence of these songs. It, you know, maybe would count, I mean, today with, with laws being what they are about uh, sampling and with music, it might even mm-hmm. be considered kind of plagiarism. 
So there was also that, that issue of taking these, these sacred, supposedly sacred songs and, and putting them in a, in a kind of raunchier context. That, that might have been part of the grief and the, the anxiety that, that people like Jerry Lee Lewis had. Little Richard had that as well when he decided he was going to give up the rock and roll lifestyle and, and go into training for the ministry. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he um, ended up in seminary, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And he had a career that he went back and forth. There was a bit of that with Jerry Lee Lewis as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, maybe many of our, of our listeners know that his cousin, Jimmy Lee Swigert, uh, was an evangelist. So Jimmy Swigert, which I grew up hearing about in my, in my circles. Um, yes. Yeah. Although he wasn't, he wasn't considered a good guy in my circles. But I, I did yeah. <laughs> So yeah. that actually brings us uh, to the, the next question. Speaking of my own, my own background, my doctoral research was about Bob Jones University and music in that fundamentalist circle. And mm-hmm. Bob Jones, as many listeners know, was part of a, or led a Supreme Court, eventually a Supreme Court case about the lack of racial integration in their school and their prohibition that lasted until the year 2000 against interracial dating between their students. And that's just like one, one facet of the racial issues in fundamentalist and conservative cultures. And as many listeners know, much of the criticism of rock and roll and jazz before it is really rooted in anti-black, anti-African-American beliefs and practices. And one thing that really interested me in your book is that you are kind of like affirming, like, yeah, actually rock and roll was an element of racial integration. Um, Mm -hmm. Like in in a sense that these fears that so many white Christians had, yeah, actually those fears were founded. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's something that, that the performers early on were, you know, were, were talking about. Like Elvis talked about how inspired he was by rhythm and blues and, you know, traditional African-American music. There were other performers like Bill Haley who said, who said the same thing, that it was really kind of, you know, it was, it, it was surprising, but it was also like he was kind of proud of the fact that these, that some of these uh, venues he played at were integrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when you have that being so kind of such an obvious part of this new teenage genre, it's, you know, it's really interesting to see what the, especially white Southern response is to it. Now, I guess that, I mean, the thing that's so fascinating about Bob Jones is that they, that they stuck to this segregationist mentality for so, so much longer, mm-hmm. or at yeah. least they didn't, they didn't camouflage it in ways that, you know, we see maybe in other kind of evangelical circles but the you know i was i was so struck by um i think it was the maybe the 2016 or 2015 handbook student handbook for bob jones university Mm -hmm. still prohibited um students from listening to christian rock and it would it'd be fascinating to see just how you know how many well really how few um evangelical or fundamentalist colleges and universities still held the line on any kind of rock and roll, whether it's Christian or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because um, schools like Liberty, um, you, you know, you watch their worship services, and they're certainly light rock, folk rock leaning. Yeah. That's actually one thing that I thought after the fact. I, in one of the chapters in particular, I thought, man, I wish I would have done a bit more with you know talking about the a service like at, at Liberty. It would have been fun to have some kind of thick description. Oh of, yeah, of what was going on especially because Liberty was another one of these until around 1990 that prohibited listening to uh, Christian rock. And then it, 
you know, not long after DC Talk became semi-famous, they changed their position on that. Yeah, I was fascinated how uh, Jerry Falwell framed that as because these were um, were they students students at, at um, Liberty or alumni? Yeah, they had been former students. Yeah. yeah, well, they were students when they first started uh, performing, from what I remember. And then he, you know, he becomes aware of their music, and he's. I think it was maybe in the Washington Post when he's interviewed about it and said that it, it was undeniable that this was that this kind of music, this kind of pop rap, was pulling in young people in ways that you know the country music that Jerry Falwell liked uh, just couldn't. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Billy Graham before him, initially rejecting rock and roll and then being like, oh well, you know, uh, some of this Jesus people music, you know, we can. What was that in like the early seventies? Saying, oh well, we yeah. can we can bring in popular styles if it brings in the young people. Yeah, it's, there's a real turning point in 1971 and 1972, especially because of the Jesus People movement. And maybe it's also because it's just everywhere in, you know, headlines and newspapers, mm, yeah. and magazine. And it's the same time that Jesus Christ Superstar becomes really big and, and becomes a Broadway hit. And there's this, it's almost like a kind of Jesus fever that grips the, you know, this sort of pop cultural world. Yeah. Like for me, just coming from my my own little research area, the the folks that I study started writing about the dangers of rock and roll really in the late 60s, early 70s, when people like Billy Graham started accepting it. And that was one way from a fundamentalist mentality for them to say, here's our little group. This is this is what makes us different. It, like that, that separatist um, impulse, you know, drawing the lines and really clearly defining themselves against their close religious neighbors, which would be um, someone like Billy Graham. Yeah, there was a great uh, study that you probably come across by a sociologist of religion, Nancy Ammerman. Mm-hmm. She writes about the that separatism. I was I thought that was so interesting that you know you can you can define fundamentalism and evangelicalism by a lot of different ways. And, oh, yeah. But it seems like nowadays with scholars, scholars are less inclined to just focus mostly on belief and mm-hmm. and theology. There's all these mm-hmm. other sort of ways, like by politics or by by their engagement or disengagement from popular culture. Yeah. So yeah. there's kind of this broadening out of it, I think, that's quite interesting. I think one thing that many of our listeners will be really interested in in your book, since we have so many people who are church leaders, pastors, music ministers listening, is that much of non-Pentecostal church music has been deeply influenced by Pentecostal theology through the songs, praise and worship songs that have become popular. And um, people who've been listening to the show since the beginning might remember back to episode three with Sui Hung Lim and Lester Ruth about their book, The History of Contemporary Worship, which is just a, a nice little slim volume. It's very, very accessible, it's useful as a college text, but just a really interesting take on like how Pentecostal theology is in so many non-Pentecostal churches now because of the popularity of Pentecostal music. And this is something that you talk about, uh, which is that the, I forget how you put it. You said um, evangelicalism has been Pentecostalized mm-hmm. through, through music. Yeah. I think that even from the, the tradition that I grew up in, the, uh, the church of the Nazarene, you can certainly see that from the 1970s forward. And, there, and part of it was a willingness to, in some cases, to embrace the Jesus people movement to, to be more kind of open with, with songs and with the kind of instrumentation that was used that maybe 20 years before the 1970s would have been considered, you know, just outrageous uh, within some of these church circles. I mean, I have a very early memory in the 1970s of seeing drums 
in my um, my grandfather's Wesleyan church. Mm. And that's another thing that would have, you know, in the 1960s would have been pretty un- unheard of within, well, in some cases within Pentecostal, sort of uh, the realm of Pentecostalism, but especially with among evangelicals. But there's just this, you know, from the 70s forward, there's much more experimentation from, from what I saw. And part of that has to do with the size of the baby boomer generation and this desperate desire to try to appeal to, to young people and the fear that, they're, that evangelicals, fundamentalists are losing out to that. Now, the, there's a thing too that I'm sure you, you're quite familiar with from you know, the context of Bob Jones is that a lot of these fundamentalist leaders spot that really early on and say, wait a second, this is kind of a backdoor way for Pentecostals to gain influence within our religious communities. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the for sure. Heightened fear about what this new music represented uh, mm-hmm. theologically. Yeah, I think that's one thing that so surprises me about the popularity of praise and worship. And I'm, I'm using that in the really narrow sense of like specifically praise and worship. I don't just mean uh, contemporary Christian music generally. But one thing that really surprises me about that is just how these songs are in mainline Protestant churches. And I, I don't mean that as a criticism, but just as a huh, that's really weird because that's not what these mainline churches actually believe. And that's even something I encounter in programming music for the UCC church where I work, a congregationalist UCC church. And I'm like, huh, these anthems that the church owns, this is not actually what you believe. And, you know, maybe maybe that doesn't matter or maybe it does. But this Pentecostal theology is not not part of the church's teachings. But, I mean, music is a great vehicle for, for getting your message message out, I guess, <laughs> regardless. It does, make you, it does make you wonder how much people, act, you know, I'm sure that somebody's done survey work about this, but how much just regular folks in the pews are, are thinking a whole lot about the, the, uh, the theology that's embedded within the songs that they sing, or if it's just something that they don't really think about. It reminds me actually of um, my wedding and we uh, sent out to wedding in- invitees like, Oh, tell us your favorite song that we could dance to. And, um, one very, very conservative person sent us a uh, very, very raunchy song. And I was like, huh, huh, I don't think you've ever listened to the lyrics of this. Yeah. And I, I tried to keep that in the back of my mind as I'm like, you know, as a minister of music, like, oh, yeah, the, the theology, all oh, the theology in the songs. And then I'm like, oh, I sure hope so. <laughs> but yeah. I, I wouldn't yeah. guarantee it. I don't know how, how well Martin Luther's sermon and song actually uh works practically speaking yeah yeah exactly (laughs) so um many of the people who listen to this show are musicologists and theologians who work on congregational music and one thing i really loved about your book is that that isn't your disciplinary background your background is as an americanist and so Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you have things about your book and your research that you'd be like oh hey y'all who have this different disciplinary background like think about these kinds of things also yeah, that's a really good question because um, I guess for me, I I was trying to be attuned to the shifts in the culture and shifts in society that um, took place in the 1960s, and then and then talk about that, you know, on a parallel track with the developments that were happening within churches. So the kind of liberal Supreme Court of the 1960s and of the Johnson years and the hand-wringing among evangelicals about that political culture, these things happening at the same time that there's this early experimentation with electric guitars and drums and different styles of music within uh, church settings. So I wanted to, I, I wanted to kind of talk about, because I'm trained as, a, as an American historian, so 
I wanted to talk about the context of the decades of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in particular, and how church music, or, or especially how um, you know, Christian pop music for this later period, was influenced by some of these cultural and political developments. Yeah, I think, I think that for me, like just, just reading through your book, it was just like, there are so many other ways to ask questions. And maybe for listeners who are not in academia, which is a lot of y'all, it's, it's interesting to think about how that applies to the specific church setting in that many of us tend to think that the way we do things at our church is, well, that's how it's done. Or many people in the congregation tend to think, well, this is how you do it, right? Without realizing that churches are really, really different from each other. And um, that goes also for us in working on academic projects where we just, we're trained to ask really different kinds of questions and it yields wonderfully different kinds of research. So with that said, are there other areas that you would like to cover that you'd like to talk about in thinking about your work? No, it's, it was interesting you were saying that because um, I, I participated in a, um, a review of my book that was just in this publication out of the UK called Reviews in History. And um, the reviewer offered some really interesting and, and sort of provocative critiques of the book. And one was about... Um, what my project would have looked like if I was trained as a musicologist. And I agree oh, with him. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trained as a musicologist. And I think it would be, it'd be very different because, you know, especially if, if I was analyzing the songs, particular songs in more depth, or, you know, not quite musicology, but analyzing the lyrics of the songs, I thought it would have been, I guess I didn't have enough time, but mm-hmm. it would have been really fun. Well, fun for me, I guess not fun for other people <laughs> to, to analyze the content of the lyrics for, um, say, from uh, 1971, you know, just until 1975. And because and, um, I, I made some generalizations about it, because you know, quite a few of the songs, uh, themes had to do with, you know, the apocalypse, the end of the world, with uh, a kind of a, a very personalized evangelical style faith uh, about uh, the born again experience. And, but it would be, you know, if you, if you could take like, maybe 200 songs and, and say like, what are the themes of these more kind of popular songs from the, from the bigger bands uh, of the day or the ones that we associate mm-hmm. with the kind of founding of Christian rock. But in a way that would, I mean, that would be for a different uh, project. Yeah. It but would one, just be a really different book. One thing I'm doing for a uh, possibly a journal article is I'm going to be looking at developments within the UK at the same time as the U.S., about how churches are trying to be more proactive about pop culture, which really there was a lot of that happening in the U.K. before it was happening in the U.S. But I want to try to, to um, talk about these sort of parallel developments with these, in these countries and even see if, they, if there were influences back and forth across the Atlantic on that. Oh, that's fascinating. Your book references a lot of stuff up into the presence, but it mostly lives, you know, pre-2000. And I wonder if you you see your work in current ramifications. Um, Yeah, I guess, you know, I I could have explored this more, but it was just, it probably would have taken like the theme in a different direction. But at the, in the last chapter, I was kind of wondering about the politicization, well, in the last two chapters, the politicization of evangelicals um, and the, the ways that evangelicals sort of accommodated to a certain political culture, especially with, um, you know, 81% of white evangelicals voting for uh, Trump in 2016. Mm-hmm. And there, there probably is a way to talk more about 
how evangelicals were so pretty willing to adopt and adapt popular culture at the same time that they were also very willing to um, kind of, you know, make, in some ways, make um, evangelicalism synonymous with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wasn't quite sure how to do that without it seeming like, well, maybe these are too different, you know, to talk about. Um, but it is a kind of adaptation of the faith to both uh, popular culture and political culture mm-hmm. that I think says something about how elastic evangelicalism is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, evangelist, the evangelistic impulse itself, you know, yeah. we have to bring the people in, we have to get them saved. How can we do this? Yeah. How can we be all things to all people? Yeah. And I think for a lot of outsiders and critics of the faith, they, they might see evangelicals as very rigid or, you know, unwilling to adapt, but actually it's, I mean, the story of the 20th century evangelicalism and even a, you know, to some degree mainline Protestantism is it's either a willingness to, to adapt to culture or not to do that. And then the, the sort of results, the positive or negative results from, from that willingness or lack of willingness. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been really wonderful to talk with you and learn from you. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. I've appreciated it and had a, had a really interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks to Randall J. Stevens for this conversation about the devil's music, how Christians inspired, condemned, and embraced rock and roll. You can find show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 36, where you can get a link to Randall's book and find out more about him. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Bariza, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church.